You may be seated. Well, good morning. It is good to see you all once again. Um, before I dive in this morning, I, I just wanted to pause and just take a moment. And can, can, we just, can we just praise the Lord for Pastor Rod for a second? I'm going to tell you why in just a minute. Let's... Um, Man, aren't these interviews encouraging? Um, and, and don't they provide opportunities for us to engage in our community on mission? And I'm so thankful that Rod is like a thoroughbred horse that you have to like hold back on these things because he is just motivated to see our church being, being salt and light in our community. And I'm so excited about what the future has in stores, and I'm grateful for Rod's partnership in ministry and his leadership of our congregation to help us to be mobilized towards mission. I, I just look forward to like next year at this time and seeing all the ways that God has kind of energized gospel hope to be serving in our community. I'm just really excited about that. So let's, let's just praise the Lord again together. Amen. Well, man, did you uh, listen as I read that text this morning? Ouch, right? I mean, this is a hard text. And I pray that the Lord will really help us to see what he has for us this morning. I think he has some great things in store, some conviction, some areas of encouragement, some ways that we need to change. So can we pause one more time and just ask for God's help here? Lord, we do need you. And we acknowledge right now that we are dependent. We are not independent. You and you alone are God and we are not. And I pray this morning that you would make us aware and sensitive to the ways that money and wealth and resources can at times lead us astray. I pray, Lord, that we would hear the rebuke of James chapter 4 and chapter 5, and we would turn, that we would turn to the Savior and be open-handed with everything that you've entrusted to us. Oh God, would you speak to your people today? We need to hear your voice. We need to hear our good shepherd today. So speak, Lord, speak to your people. In Christ we pray, amen. So the title of the message today is The Great Illusionist. How many, how many of you like magic shows? Anybody out there? Okay, good, good. David Copperfield is, with little debate, probably one of the greatest magicians of all time. Throughout the years, Copperfield has performed a number of incredible feats. Here's some of them. He has made the Statue of Liberty vanish and then reappear. He has walked through the Great Wall of China. He has escaped a fall over Niagara Falls. And of course, he flew right in front of a studio audience just a few steps away from him. Indeed, Copperfield is a master of his craft. However, very recently, Copperfield was forced to break the magician's code and actually under oath 
fully reveal exactly how he pulled off one of his famous tricks. Did you see this on the news? So he had to go before a judge and actually explain how he did one of his tricks. And the reason was because an audience member claimed to have been injured while participating in one of his Las Vegas performances and was suing Copperfield for damages. So in order to defend himself, Copperfield had to explain how he did his trick. Spoiler alert, I know this is going to come a shock to you, but Copperfield is not a magician. He's just an illusionist. I know, I know, I was fooled myself, right? As great as Copperfield is, all he ultimately does is just convince you, or try to convince you, that something that isn't real is. That's really what an illusionist does, right? They try to convince you that something that isn't real is. Now, David Copperfield performs his illusions to entertain. But today, I want to warn you about an illusionist that is much more devious. And I guarantee to you, every single one of you in this room has been taken in at some point or another by his sleight of hand. This great illusionist is, of course, none other than money. Money. The great illusionist of money. You see, money, like others skilled in the art of misdirection, attempts to get us to embrace an alternative reality. And this is why even the Savior said this when he cautioned people. He said, hey, beware of the deceitfulness of riches in Matthew chapter 13, verse 22. Simply put, simply put, money deceives. Or if you want to be even more harsh, money lies. This is not to say that money itself is evil. It's not. This is not to say that money can't be used for good purposes, but, ma but rather, money has a nasty habit of tempting us to believe things that simply aren't true. Just think of all the times that the Bible warns us about the temptations of money. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. Luke chapter 12, verse 15. Take care and be on your guards against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and into snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And the Bible is replete with warnings about the dangers of money. So why does God keep on warning us about money? Because the reality is, is that money tends to deceive us. In this passage of scripture, James chapter 4, verse 13 and following, James take a the similar tack, cautioning us particularly, cautioning particularly those with means not to be duped by the tricks and illusions of money. And that's really the theme of today's message. If you're taking notes, my point is simply this. We must not be fooled by money's illusions. 
We can't be taken in by this master magician's tricks. In this passage, as if James is acting as the masked magician. How many of you saw that show or remember it? There was this guy, he was a magician. He wore a mask and he would reveal all the tricks of the other magicians. That's what James is doing in this passage. James is like the masked magician and saying, look, I'm going to show you what money does. So you don't get tricked next time it pulls its tricks on you. I want to show you the illusions of money and kind of let you see behind the curtain, as it were, as to why money is able to dupe us so easily. So that raises the question, right? What are these illusions that money uses? It's that question that I hope to answer, Lord willing, arising from the text here in the next few minutes. We're going to look at two illusions that money often plays on us, that we often fall prey to. So, the illusions of one. Illusion number one. You ready? You ready to see behind the curtain here? Illusion number one. Money gives me control. That's perfect. Perfect for today, right? Like nobody's coming out. But we should I should have thought about that when I realized Man, we could have had a light show and all kinds of things. I could have made Rod disappear. That would be awesome. Okay. Illusion number one, money gives me control. James begins this section with a word to those who engage in business. Look at verse 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. James' issue with these entrepreneurs is not so much with what they were doing. He doesn't have a problem with people doing business. His issue is rather the presumption with which they were doing it. That is, these people were acting as if their means gave them control of the future. They were acting as if they had control because they had something in their wallet. Look at verse 14. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Listen, money can do many things, but it cannot purchase you knowledge of the future or power over your death. Money can do a lot in this world, but it cannot make you omniscient. It cannot make you know what tomorrow will bring. It cannot make you live a day longer. Money simply cannot make you independent from God. And that's James' issue here. These people were living as if they were independent from God because they had money in their checkbook. Many people have a goal today of becoming financially independent. That is, they want to have enough money saved up so that they do not need income for a job to sustain them. While financial independence is an attainable goal for some people, and it's not an evil goal, so to speak. It's not bad to say, I don't want to have to take a paycheck from an employer. That's not evil or bad. But no matter how rich you are, no matter how financially independent you think you are, ultimate independence from God is impossible. There will never come a day There will never come a day when you as a human being can live independently from the God of the universe. In 2009, um, the king of pop, Michael Jackson, passed away. You know how much Michael was worth at the day of his death? Six hundred million dollars. 
I can't even like get my head around that number. Six hundred million dollars. Like you could just spend and spend and spend and like never run out of that. But but here's the thing. Despite all of Michael Jackson's riches, let me ask you a couple questions. Did Michael Jackson have control of his health? Yes or no? Did Michael Jackson have control over public opinion? Yes or no? No. Did Michael Jackson have control over his death? Yes or no? No. Listen, $600 million, Michael Jackson's wealth could purchase him Neverland Ranch. But it cannot purchase him control. And no matter how much money you have, you cannot be in control. Frankly, we're all in the same boat, aren't we? Can you make your heart keep beating? Yes or no? No. Can you guarantee that an accident won't kill you on the way home? Yes or no? Can you ensure that you will wake up in the morning? No. Can you guarantee, can you promise anything ultimately about tomorrow? Yes or no? No. Because you are not in control of those things. No matter how secure your job, no matter how diverse your portfolio No matter how big your bank account, you are not God. He is in control and you are not. In the words of the Lord himself in Deuteronomy chapter 32, see now, I alone am he. There is no God but me. I bring death and I give life. No one can rescue anyone from my hand. In other words, God is simply saying, listen, I'm God. You're not. I don't care how rich you are or influential you are. I am in control and no amount of money will ever change that. You are not in control. You cannot add an hour to your life. You cannot guarantee tomorrow because you are the creature and I am the creator. That's why James offers this correction. Look at verse 15. Instead, instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance All such boasting is evil. So it is a sin for a person who knows to do what is good and doesn't do it. In other words, there should be an open-handedness to all of our thoughts about the future. Do you understand what I mean by that? Just an open-handedness to all of our thoughts about the future. None of this closed fist stuff. Like, I'm going to do this. No, open-handed because you're not in control in the future. Listen to this statement very carefully. All human plans are at best good intentions. I hope, I hope that many of our community groups become world relief good neighbor team, uh, good neighbor teams. I hope that happens, but that's all it is ultimately. It's just a good intention. I plan to take my children home after church today. But all it is is a good intention because I can't guarantee anything. I'm not the Lord. And therefore, there should be kind of this asterisk after everything I say, if the Lord wills. Now, now I, don't mean that, I, don't, I don't mean that to say you need to go home to dinner today and you're sitting across the table and you say, my dearest, could you pass me the salt if the Lord wills? 
To which he or she looks back to you, at you and says, oh, my honey lum lum. <laughs> I would be so happy to pass the salt back to you if indeed the Lord wills it. It's not like some sort of magic expression. I don't think the Lord just kind of like every sentence needs to end with the statement, if the Lord wills. That's not what James is getting at here. What James is getting at is there ought to be a heart attitude that simply always acknowledges that we are not in control. James wants us to acknowledge that God is ultimately large and in charge, and we are not, no matter how big your bank account is. Now, this is, this is something that we as Americans need to be reminded of, particularly Americans. Although I doubt most of us in this room, if I kind of took a straw poll before you walked in and said, how many of you would consider yourself rich? I would bet very few of us would raise our hands. However, let me stop and cause us to reflect carefully on this for just a moment, okay? Half of the world's population lives on around a dollar a day. Half. What is more, Another quarter of the world's population lives on less than $10 a day. What that means is if you make more than $70 a week, if you make more than $70 a week, you are in the top 25% of the world's wealthiest people. And let me go another step further. If you make $30,000 a year, you are in the top 5% of the world's wealthiest people. Now, I do not say this to minimize the fact that people are living in poverty here in the United States. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not minimizing that. I'm not undermining the fact that that is difficult. But I want to give us some perspective so that the words of this passage don't simply slide over us. Oh, he's talking to someone else. Oh, that's those rich people. And generally, you ask, who's rich? The people who make more than me, right? Isn't that what we do? Oh, the rich people, they're the ones that make more than me. But I think just globally, virtually every single person in this room is not just rich, but you're extravagantly rich. You are in like the narrowest of narrowest bars. You are in the top 5%. And actually, if I was really honest and looked hard at those statistics, you'd probably be in the top 2 or 3%. We just need to hear these words not directed to someone else out there. We need to hear James' words directed directly at you and I. Listen, subsistence living. Do you know what subsistence living is? Subsistence living, and that's a really hard word for me to say, um, means that you're basically living from hand to mouth. You're just looking for the next meal, basically, so that you can survive. You're just trying to stay alive. When you live in that level of poverty, it has a way of reminding you that you're not in control, doesn't it? Man, if you are just broke and you don't know where the next meal is coming from, you literally do not know when or how you are going to eat next. There is just a reminder built into that style of living. I'm not in charge here. But wealth or prosperity, even to a moderate degree, can make you forget this reality. Man, one of my favorite movies growing up was Hook. How many of you saw Hook? Okay, yeah. So it's a, it's a movie about Peter Pan growing up. 
And Peter Pan grows up, and he's in the adult world, right? And he's in the adult world so long that it makes him forget that he was Peter Pan. <laughs> what an analogy, right? I think money, I think wealth, I think prosperity tends to do the same thing to us. We get wealth and we get around it so much that we forget that we are not in control. We forget something that should be patently obvious to us. Something that everybody that really claims to believe the Bible would say, yes, of course I'm not in control, but money has this amnesiatic effect on us. It makes us kind of forget what should be plain to us. We are not in control. Listen, listen, here's some diagnostic questions. Do you pray less right after payday? Is your level of anxiety directly correlated with your bank account? Do you routinely make financial decisions without consulting God's word or godly counsel? Do you feel uneasy whenever you find yourself on the receiving end of another person's generosity? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then perhaps you have been fooled by money's illusion. Perhaps you've forgotten that you are not in control and money does not give you control. Listen, money is a gift that can quickly cause us to forget the giver. It has that power in it, and it is a dangerous power that we all have to be aware of. We the rich, I'm not saying that degradedly, but we the rich who live in this country, who live with the means that we have, need to realize that we are very tempted by money's illusion to think that that makes us in control. You are but a mist. You can't guarantee tomorrow. So instead, you ought to have said, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Illusion number two. My money is for me. It's another illusion that money can make us believe. My money, it's for me. Now listen to those hard words again of James chapter 5. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming on you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in these last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your field, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached your ears of the Lord of harvest. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. It seems that there were those in James' context who were hoarding wealth for themselves where there were pressing needs present all around them. The rich people in this passage had unused assets that they were withholding not only from the needy, but seemingly from those who deserved it. The rich in this passage were thinking completely wrongly about money. They were thinking that money was something for them to use for their own desires. It is said that if a violin is not played for a long time, it goes to sleep. 
that is, it loses its tone. It becomes less bright. It sounds rather dull. The exact reason why this happened is unknown, but what is clear is that violins are made to be played, not just set on the shelf and admired. Listen, money is a tool to be used, not a treasure to be hoarded. I think that's what he's getting at here in this passage by condemning the rich. He said, you are acting like money is a treasure to be hoarded. And there it sits corroding and not being used. And there are people in the streets crying out. And you owe them. You owe them. You are acting as if your money is yours to do whatever you want with. Because of this practice, the Lord was not pleased to say the least. I mean, listen to the harsh language. Weep and howl and mourn, for judgment is coming on you. Now, you might hear this and say, well, thankfully. (laughs) Thankfully, this doesn't apply to me. I don't write paychecks. I receive paychecks. And if I did... If I did write the paychecks, I would definitely give it to my employees. There is no question about it. This certainly may be true. I don't know of any members of Gospel Hope Church that are shady employers. I don't know of that. But underneath this sinful behavior that James is addressing is a fundamental misunderstanding of money that I think you and I can be equally prone to. You see, the rich in this passage had bought the illusion that money is fundamentally for our own personal indulgence. Now, you and I may never, like, articulate it this boldly. We never, we we might never say, my money is for me to spend on me. You might never say that because uh, hopefully you're a Christian, okay? Hopefully you don't talk that way. But we can suddenly fall into the same air saying things like this. Ready? I've worked hard for all that I have. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the finer things in life. If the Lord didn't want me to use it, he wouldn't have blessed me with it. Everyone deserves a little diversion in life. Now here's the thing. Listen, don't misunderstand me. These statements are not completely wrong, right? There's a ring of truth in each of those statements. In fact, God does desire that his people enjoy the the world that he has created. God does want us to enjoy life. That's not an evil thing. However, it can be very easy for us to begin to think of the resource that God has entrusted us as primarily, primarily, that's the key word there, primarily a tool for self-gratification. We can begin to think of the resources that God entrusted us as primarily a tool for self-gratification. So how do we avoid being duped by this powerful, powerful illusion? How do we avoid buying into what is so common that my money is for me to use on me? I think the answer is that we strive to remember is that our money is not our money at all. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants, belongs to the, what's it say, church? Lord. This means everything that you have, everything that you own, 
ultimately belongs to the Lord. When we recognize this, it changes everything, doesn't it? When you start to say, my money is not really my money. It's the Lord's money. Uh, let, me, let me illustrate. Um, hey, DeLacy, can I see that pencil real quick? Thank you. There you go. Now, you see me do that, and what do you think? Man, that's rude. You took her pencil. She was just happily taking it. She was actually, like, taking, like, really good notes with that. I was like, here, I better give you the eraser back, because you'll want to erase some of those notes now, right? Yeah. Uh, you took her pencil, and you just did whatever you want with it. You just broke it. That's, that's rude. You, can't, you don't have the right to do that. Except for what if I told you that I gave DeLacy that pencil? And it was actually my pencil. And so if it's my pencil, I have the right to do whatever I want with it. It's, it's not hers, it's mine. In the same way, here's the thing. Ownership matters. It changes the dynamic of things. You need to understand that what you have does not ultimately belong to you. The first step to handling money biblically is acknowledging that it all belongs to God. So if God owns it all then, if it's not like our money, but if it's his money, it's his resources, what then is our responsibility? I think the Bible's imagery is extremely helpful. Um, Luke chapter 19 is where we're going to look here. Luke 19, it says this. A noble one went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas. That's, a, that's an amount of money, okay? That's a unit of money. And said to them, engage in business until I come. Verse 15. When he returned, having received his kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Verse 26. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, but for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. As one writer puts it, God is the owner of all things, and we are simply his money managers. That's the picture there. God says, here, I'm entrusting you with this. I'm going away for a little while. But I'll be back. And when I come back, I'm going to evaluate not what you did with your money, but what you did with the money that I entrusted to you. It's my money. Started my money. Ends my money. But I have allowed you to manage those things while I am gone. And some people are good money managers and some people are not. If you read the whole parable, you would understand that impact there. God is saying, I own it all, but I have entrusted you. I have entrusted you with money and resources and wealth and time and talents and treasures. And you're to leverage those for my purposes. <laughs> Let's suppose you had invested some money in a retirement account with a financial advisor. So after making a number of deposits on your account, you go and you do, 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 pull it up online and you look at your account balance and you're like, wow, it's at zero. That's interesting. I've been sending these checks along to my financial money manager. So you make an appointment right away. You head over to the office 
and you sit down and you say, hey, I was checking out my account balance and I noticed it was zero. That's a computer error, correct? And he said, oh yeah, do you like my suit? What? And my shoes. I just bought this suit and shoes with the money that you gave me. Also, did you see the new BMW out in the parking lot? I put the down payment on that with some of the money that you gave me. Thank you so much. Your deposits have really helped my life. You would say, wait, 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 wait. You've been keeping the money? To which she responded, of course. You've been sending it to me. If you didn't want me to use it, why did you give it to me? To which you would say, you are a money manager. That's your job. Are we unclear on what a money manager does? You manage someone else's money. It doesn't become your money. You manage it on behalf of someone else. Now, obviously, this is a ridiculous illustration. But when we forget that we are God's money managers, we fall into the same air. God is saying, I'm giving you this stuff not so that you can go buy a new suit and a BMW. I'm not saying buying a suit and BMW are evil. But that is not the purpose of buying the things. You are God's money manager. It is his money. And we are to leverage those resources the way that he would have us to leverage those resources. So what does it look like to live as a faithful steward? What does it look like to live as a money manager of God's money? I think that it means that we are leveraging all that we have to further Christ's agenda. Isn't that what a good money manager would be doing? He would be working on behalf of his client, doing all that he can to multiply and use the money in the way that the client would want him to. That's exactly what our job is in the world today. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't feed your family because God would want you to feed your family. That doesn't mean that you should never enjoy anything or take a vacation because God would want you to do those things sometimes. But it does mean that every decision that you make is undergirded with the principle that this isn't mine ultimately. I'm to use it in a way that gives glory and honor to the Lord and furthers his agenda in the world. So how am I leveraging the money that God has entrusted me to make his name great in the world? How am I leveraging what he has entrusted to me to make disciples who are growing in the gospel as a family? Why on mission? How am I using his money that he has made me the manager of? Let me just give you a couple of suggestions. Maybe... Every time we spend, we should consider the eternal ramifications of our expenditures. See, that's weird. Yes, but wouldn't it shape the way we spend? How will this financial decision result? What will it result in in 100 years from now or 200 or 10,000 years from now? Pray before we spend. Just pause and say, Lord, I want to manage your money well. What does this look like? Lord, I need your help. I need your wisdom. Strive to consistently increase our giving. You know, when you get a raise, don't just say, oh, now I have more money to spend on me. Rather say, Lord, what do you want me to do with this raise? Now, is it just to increase my standard of living or is it to increase my standard of giving? How can I leverage what you have given me to bless people more? Sacrifice for the kingdom. I, I think this is a great diagnostic question for our hearts. What are you going without because you're a Christian? 
What is not in your life? Because you love Jesus so much. And you've said, you know what? I love Jesus. I could purchase this because I've got the money, but I would rather give it to this because I want to see Christ. That's my value. That's what I really value. Listen, you can't take it with you. How many has, has heard that statement, right? You can't take it with you, but if you're a believer, you can send it on ahead. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. And as money managers, that ought to be our mindset. I ought to be using my money to make Christ and his kingdom look great. Now, I don't know what that exactly looks like in your life. I'm not standing up here as Judgy McJudgerson. What I am saying is that we all need to carefully ask ourselves these questions. Have I been duped by the illusions of money? Have I believed that money somehow makes me in control? Have I somehow believed that my money is primarily for me? And that I can use it however I want. Have we forgotten the reality that no, God is in control. And everything belongs to him. And everything that we have in our hands has ultimately been entrusted to us by him. We are not the owners of anything. We are simply God's money managers if you've chosen to trust in the finished work of Jesus. <laughs> in Greek mythology, there was this creature known as the siren. And the siren sang such beautiful songs that it would tempt the sailors to steer towards them and crash their ships on the rocky coast of their islands. It seems that money in this world today has the power of the siren song in it. It calls to us with its illusions and lies and says, Come, spend me, get me, and you'll be happy. You'll be satisfied. You'll be fulfilled. And when we veer our ships that way, we end up desolated on the rocks. Ruined lives, wrecked lives, because we have served something that ultimately is a liar. Remember, money deceives. Jesus says, watch out for the deceitfulness of riches. They will choke out your spiritual life. So is there any hope? It's kind of a grim portrait, isn't it? I mean, our world, our society is as materialistic as they come. Get rich or die trying. Get all you can, can all you can get. He who dies with the most toys wins. All you have to do is listen to a half an hour of the radio and you realize that our culture is money obsessed. So can we escape the siren song? Can we see through the great illusionist's tricks? Can we get through it and ha thankfully? I think the answer is yes. And here's why. When Jesus came to earth, he died and rose again in part so that people, his people, would not be fooled by money's ploy. Do you know that Jesus died so that you could see through the illusion? Part of the reason that Jesus laid down his life on the cross is to rescue you from the lies of money. You say, where do you get that, Ryan? Well, Matthew's gospel says it this way. Here's the Lord himself speaking. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of great pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, 
went and sold all that he had and bought it. Listen, Christ makes himself known to his people in such a way that when you truly see him, when you truly see him, you see him as more valuable than anything else. You see him as more than money, more than luxury, more than affluence, more than wealth, more than all the things that money can buy. And you look at all those things and you say, I will happily sell all of those. I will happily trade all of those if I could just have that one pearl of great price because he is worth more than anything that money can buy me. Listen, Jesus died on the cross to rescue you from being fooled by money. Oh, it is good news, brothers and sisters, that if you see Jesus as the pearl of great price, Jesus has saved you from the great illusionist. Listen, Jesus came to save, yes, but he came to satisfy so that our souls would say, I don't just need to get out of hell. I have to have Jesus. I have to have Jesus. I want him. I want him more than a pay raise. I want him more than financial independence. I want him more than a big old fat bonus. I want him more than anything. You can take all everything else. Just give me Jesus. Jesus just didn't die so one day you could go to heaven. Jesus died so you wouldn't be a simpleton, a fool, tricked by the charlatan huckster money today. Jesus is your savior in more ways than you can imagine. Here's the implication. If you have trusted in the work of Jesus, you can resist the illusions of money because you have the reality. You don't need a dog and pony show. You don't need to go to Vegas, see the great stage man perform. You have the reality, and his name is Jesus Christ. Money offers you a spoonful. Jesus offers you the whole mountain. Because of Jesus, the Lord is your portion. Because of Jesus, God is your inheritance. Because of Jesus, you are joint heirs with Christ, the King of the universe. You have an eternal dwelling place with Him forever. Because of Jesus, you are objects of the riches of God's grace. Because of Jesus, God will forever pour out His blessings on you. Because of Jesus, your investments in Christ's kingdom in the here and now will be multiplied infinitely forever and ever. Because of Jesus, you have a treasure in heaven that'll never decay, that'll never rot, that'll never go away because of Jesus. Listen to this. God himself is your rewarder and God himself is your reward. Because of Jesus, church, those who trust in Christ are unspeakably rich. We don't need to believe the lies of money. We don't need to be deceived by the illusions because we have something better. We have found the pearl of great price. Jesus has opened our eyes to say, hey, I don't, need, I don't need the money because I have something far more valuable. I'm not fooled by its lies because I've seen the beauty of Jesus. Let the words of the old hymn be our song. 
Riches I heed not. In other words, I don't listen to them. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou, my inheritance, now and always, thou and thou only, first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. Let that be the anthem of our heart that we say, I don't need riches. I don't listen to riches because I have found the greatest riches in Christ himself. Oh, church, don't be duped. Don't let the flourish of money deceive you. Look to the reality of Jesus and he will set you free from the siren song of wealth and affluence. Let's be a church that radically uses our resources to further our king's agenda in the world. Let's pray. Oh Lord, deliver us. Rescue us. Save us from the siren song of money. I pray that we would respond the way that we ought to your word this morning. As our prayer team comes, I just want to give a couple words of kind of practical application here. You can look up at me for a moment. Say, Pastor Ryan, I hear you. I'm with you. How do I do this? How do I work this out in my life? Let me just give you a couple of quick suggestions. First thing you can do is simply this. Reflect on the generosity of Christ. The way we get free from the pull of money is begin to realize that Christ has been so generous to us and that allows us to be generous to others. You just take a moment this morning and begin to reflect on how generous God has been to you. You might be not the richest person on your block, in our city, in your family, but you are unspeakably rich if you have Jesus. Think of all the ways that he has shown his grace and kindness to you and let that pull away, let it cut away the strings that money tries to tie to you. Second, Respond in generosity. Don't just reflect on the generosity of Christ, but respond in generosity. Do something generous. Give more than you think you can. Go serve with world relief. Find a way to serve the least of these in the world. I love the quote of John Wesley who said it this way. Money never stays with me. It would burn me if I did. I throw it out of, its, out of my hands as soon as possible. Why? Lest it should find its way into my heart. Let's be people who are just open-handed and quick to be generous, to respond in generosity because we know it's not our own ultimately and we are just stewards of what God has entrusted to us. Here's my encouragement. We're going to sing a song here and our prayer team is standing by. If the Lord's doing something in your heart about this area of money, we would love to just seek the Lord with you. Let's pray with you. Ask God to help you in that area. Let's respond generously to the generosity of Christ this morning. Can we stand together and sing, oh Lord, help us to be a generous people because you have been generous to us and saved us from the lies of money. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's worship together.